Welcome to this special edition of Looking Forward, the IPA podcast that tackles the big ideas and on days like today, the big books and their great authors. My name is Scott Hargraves, editor of the IPA Review, and today I'm joined in the IPA's Melbourne studio by John Roscombe, our executive director, and also my Looking Forward co-host, Dr. Chris Berg. But John Roscombe, please introduce our very special guest today. Welcome to this special episode, talking with Andrew Roberts. Andrew is the author of the magnificent new biography, Winston Churchill, Churchill Walking with Destiny, published at the end of 2018 by Alan and Unwin here in Australia, and which is featured in the front window of every bookshop in Australia. Andrew studied history at Cambridge University, where he gained first-class honours. He's the author or editor of some 19 books that have been translated into 22 languages. Amongst Andrew's magnificent books that I've enjoyed over the years include, of course, The Holy Fox, the biography of Lord Halifax, the British Foreign Secretary, the biography of Lord Salisbury, the 19th century British Prime Minister, and more recently, of course, Napoleon the Great. Andrew's books have won numerous awards, including the Wolfson History Prize and the James Stern Silver Pen Award for nonfiction. Andrew has a deep commitment to history and public policy and is involved in a number of think tanks such as the Policy Exchange and the Centre for Policy Studies. Of particular relevance to the work of the IPA and our Foundations of Western Civilization program is that in 2005, Andrew was the Conservative Party's, uh, a member of the Conservative Party's advisory panel on the teaching of history in schools. In 2012, Andrew was a guest of the Institute of Public Affairs in Australia, and I had the privilege of saying to Andrew when I met Andrew in Melbourne, congratulations, you have written a 1,000-page biography of Lord Salisbury that I found impossible to put down. Andrew is speaking to us today in the midst of a multi-state book tour through the United States. Andrew is in Florida right now. Andrew, it is great to be talking with you again. Welcome. Thank you. It's great to be on the show. By the way, when you mentioned that I was uh, on the uh, panel about teaching history in schools, I don't think I could have done very well because some 20% of British teenagers believe that Winston Churchill is a fictional character. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh whereas 47% of them think that Eleanor Rigby was a real person <laughs> and 53% Sherlock Holmes. Uh, so, um, so I'm not too boastful of that. And, and, and I think, Andrew, that's one of the things that I'd love to touch on in the discussion as to how do we remedy that? We, we'd, we, yeah, so, so Andrew, we'd love to talk to you about um, uh, the teaching of history because it's of interest to us, obviously, in Australia and at the, and the IPA. But y- you're, you're pushing a, a book, so I want to talk to you about the book first. So congratulations on it. It's a fantastic, um, really magnificent achievement. Um, as John, uh, to second John's point, um, uh, th- this is an incredibly um, readable, accessible history that's also very deeply informative and I, I know is doing very well. How, how did you come to Churchill? So you've done a, a lot of different um, uh, figures. You've written a lot of um, well-reviewed biographies. How, how did you come to this book? Well, I came to this really because, I mean, it's the fifth um, book I've written with Churchill in the title or the subtitle. So um, it's, he's been in the forefront of my uh, of my thoughts really for, for many years. My first book, um, Lord Halifax, was published 30 years ago. 
So, um, so just as, and also, of course, just being uh, a member of the English-speaking peoples, I, I think of him as an important uh, uh, figure. But um, why I did it now rather than at any later stage of my career was because a huge number of new sources have become available over the last 10 years. And I'm afraid it's a rather ignoble thought, but I I did uh, worry that if I didn't write it, somebody else would. (laughs) And so so I've taken advantage of the fact that the Queen has allowed me to be the first Churchill biographer to be allowed to use her father's diaries. And, of course, Churchill saw a lot of King George VI during the war. They met for lunch every Tuesday. Um, There have been 41 sets of papers deposited at Churchill Archives. Um, the, in the last 10 years, also, the Ivan Maisky diaries of the Russian ambassador have become available, the uh, verbatim accounts of the war cabinet, and so on. So, And the Churchill family were also very kind in letting me have various uh, papers that, uh, that haven't so far been published, like uh, Churchill's daughter's diary. So I did feel that um, there was sort of time running out on being able to be the first person to have all of these new sources um, in, in this book. That's really exciting, and that 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 comes through in the book. So tell us what 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 did you draw out of those new sources? So what, what, tell tell us about the sort of unique unique contribution to Churchill studies. Oh well, it's a I mean it's a cornucopia of small things. <laughs> of course, there's pretty much something on every page of this book that's never appeared in a Churchill biography before. But as far as the big things are concerned, I think from the King's diaries, um, and luckily when they when they did meet, uh, Churchill told the King everything that, uh, all the secrets of the Second World War, the Enigma secrets and the nuclear secrets and who was going to be fired and the grand strategy and so on. And the church, and the, and the king luckily wrote down everything Churchill said. Um, and the thing that uh, surprised me most, it shouldn't have surprised me. When I come to think of it now, of course I shouldn't have been surprised. But the king evinced an enormous um, degree of frustration and irritation with the Roosevelt administration in America for not being more bellicose, for the glacial way in which it uh, approached the Second World War, because Churchill saw it as a war for civilization and democracy, of course, and uh, thought that America should have got much more involved much earlier. But this was not something he could say in in um, Parliament or in public or in, in the press or even to, really to his entourage um, for, uh, for fear of the reaction that it would have in America, but he certainly could say that to the king, who he trusted implicitly. Andrew, one of the things that I think you've done so well in the book, and which I certainly appreciated uh, as as you wrote uh, the work, is just how many difficulties Churchill had. We tend to know the history of the Second World War and what happened, but what I think you've captured is the difficulties in the US relationship. What you've what you talk about in detail is that there was still a Tory party stacked with Chamberlain supporters almost to a person who did not acknowledge their failures, did acknowledge, did not acknowledge their faults and took many of them took every opportunity to undermine Churchill nearly all the way through to 1945. How did Churchill um, deal with that accommodate that and is that something that struck you as as you were working through just the depth of opposition to to Churchill all through the war that's right you're quite right he had much more hostility to him uh, both personally and politically from the conservative backbenchers his own party than from the opposition from the um, from the labor party or the liberals he um 
had a, uh, uh, a, a series of ways of dealing with this. Firstly, of course, he was personally extremely charming and ple- ple- pleasant to uh, Neville Chamberlain. He said, I cannot do this without you. As soon as he became prime minister, he gave him an important post in uh, in the cabinet, really in charge of all domestic policy. And so he did not, um, he did not sort of turn off the most important uh, figure in what could have been a devastating internal opposition to him. Secondly, he um, he was brilliant in his cabinet making in that he put just enough Chamberlainites in important positions, such as Lord Halifax, the Foreign Secretary, but there are many other examples, to ensure that the most talented of the Chamberlainites were in fact drawn into the government and were not going to be seething on the back benches in ill temper. Um, then another thing he did quite a lot of was that in each, as he got stronger, in each of his cabinet reshuffles, he kicked out a few more Chamberlainites and brought in supporters. And of course, people did turn towards him anyway, once his great speeches made him immensely popular in the country. He was getting numbers like 88 and 90% approval ratings, which have never been seen for a prime minister before or else in history. And the fourth way he dealt with it was, was by promoting uh, people out of the House of Commons into important positions in the empire, governorships and uh, and high commissionerships and so on, um, which meant that he would be able to uh, fill their places with supporters and uh, they wouldn't be in the country for the rest of the war. So that was a, a sort of useful way that a prime minister can use the constitution to uh, to minimise his it, enemies. It, it struck me, as, as you describe it through the work, that what Churchill did was almost Reagan-esque, in, in dealing with his opponents. To what do you describe that opposition? Was it um, a reluctance to acknowledge that Churchill was right? Was it uh, an acknowledgement of all his past failures? Was it a degree of class consciousness? Because what you draw out in the book so well is that difference in the views of the British ruling class. These days in 2019, we might call it almost the deep state. <laughs> and, and the views of the people, because you do talk about that through the war, despite this opposition uh, from the political class, by and large, Churchill was largely successful. What do you ascribe that opposition that Churchill faced to? Well, a lot of it comes down to, as you say, um, the, uh, the, the sort of vestigial tribal memories, really, of the Conservative Party and the way in which Winston Churchill crossed the House of the floor of the House of Commons in 1904, and then spent uh, 20 years until he returned to the House of Commons in 1925, um, denouncing the Tory party and its people and its individuals and its methods and its financing and pretty much everything else uh, to do with it. So, it, so it, it, you're it, saying it, it's explicable, so the distrust, dislike and almost hatred of the Tories to Churchill was almost explicable. <laughs> Yes, yes, absolutely. No, it's uh, it's certainly not a um, uh, just a, a sort of weird phenomenon that it's impossible to understand. <laughs> but, uh, he had he had spent twenty years denouncing them, and he'd only been in the Tory party. Had only come back for uh, for fourteen years before the war broke out. Uh, a decade of which, of course, he'd also spent on the back benches denouncing the um, uh, policy of appeasement that the leading Conservatives all believed in. So, you know, he was, as he put it, you know, uh, he, uh, um, anyone can rat, but it takes a certain ingenuity to re-rat. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and so, you know, it is very rare for, for politicians to cross the floor of the House not once but twice. And so one, in a sense, can understand why they... Uh, 
why they didn't trust him. Yeah, Andrew, and that does raise something. I, I mean, I think if we saw politicians do that these days, we would be um, uh, very angry about it. But how, how would you how would you character how would you characterize his political views? So he switches between parties. He he crosses the floor of the house. We describe him as sort of a small C conservative. But how how would you characterize? He chops him? and changes. He, on, Andrew, as you described, for example, on uh, women's suffrage. On the gold standard, he seemed to have been bullied into a view that he didn't want to hold. Yeah, how, how do we how do we understand his political views? I think that, the... I think there is a central uh, a central view, in fact, which is um, uh, the political philosophy of his father, Lord Randolph Churchill, who took it from Disraeli, of um, a Tory democracy, so what we would call today compassionate conservatism. Um, he that for him at least was enough to explain why he stayed a supporter of free trade as much as he could. He was always a supporter of social amelioration of the condition of the working classes, uh, which also explains his time as a liberal when he was one of the along with David Lloyd George, one of the founders of the welfare state. Um, but it, um, it part of that philosophy, of course, uh, of Israelis was a uh, strong defence of the empire. And of um, and of national interests. So for him, at least, he was able to argue that it was the parties who were moving away from him, rather than him who was moving away from. <laughs> Where them. have we heard that before? <laughs> Indeed, uh, Andrew. I wanted to um, uh, come back to the uh, diaries of uh, King King George uh, because the examples that you pull out they really are, I think, uh, very relevant to a range of historical debates. And as you know, the uh, the fall of Singapore was. Uh, a catastrophe and uh, has then led to a lot of, uh, particularly in Australia, uh, historical readings that uh, uh, not only was it neglected, but that Churchill essentially, when he was being pestered by Robert Menzies, our Prime Minister, and, and later John Curtin, had refused to uh, supply Singapore and, and was essentially fobbing them off, uh, was really almost the accusation almost that he was lying to them about the threats to Singapore, but then there is a quote in the diary of the king where Churchill told him, just as he had told the Prime Minister, that uh, he did not rate the threat highly. He thought that if anything had have happened uh, in the, uh, what of course to Britain is the Far East, that America would respond. And that for him there was a strategic conception behind what he was telling Menzies. And, and it was exactly the same thing that he was uh, telling the king. So uh, how does that read for you? Yes, I um, I looked very carefully for any um, any sign of uh, Australia phobia, uh, if there's such a word, um, in Churchill, because obviously, also, I'm sure we're going to get onto it with regard to the Dardanelles and the Gallipoli campaign. Um, he's been accused of this uh, very much. I think, in fact, it was a genuine uh, mistake. Everything to do with. Um, Singapore was a mistake. They simply underestimated the power of the fortress to hold out, wildly underestimated. And it wasn't just uh, Churchill. So did um, Sir Alan Brooke, the chief of the Imperial General Staff, and from March 1942, the chief of the British Chiefs of Staff. That was the chairman of the British Chiefs of Staff. That was a uh, a, a problem right across the board, and the, and, and, and the also, supply. In a way, they're in a way they're they're criticised for either you do resupply um, uh, Singapore, or which um, which you know is a is a problem because when they did put in a, a division there, it got captured and wouldn't have done had it not been sent there. So 
all in all, it's a sort of no-win situation, if you see what I mean. Indeed, and 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 a disaster, but not necessarily mendacity. And and of course, you also highlight that uh, there, there was an expectation that the U.S. fleet uh, would be in the vicinity, but uh, no one had anticipated Pearl Harbor either. Or or the losses of the Repulse and the Prince of Wales, of course, which again have been put down to uh, to Churchill. I don't believe you can do you can really blame him as opposed to the Admiralty and indeed the Admiral who who died sadly on that uh, in that disaster. But you um, again, I think that Churchill can be accused. I mean, he did make endless endless political mistakes in his life. He certainly did, and military mistakes. But um, but I don't think he can be accused of uh, of mendacity, at least not over. And not over there. And Andrew, you mentioned Gallipoli. Can I ask you about your perspective on Churchill's views on Australia? You've written deeply about the Second World War more broadly. And of course, here in Australia, uh, Churchill's treatment or perceived treatment of Australians in the First World War, in the Second World War, and even after that, is, is part of the anti-British mythology-making famously promulgated by our Labor Prime Minister, um, Paul Keating. How did Churchill regard Australia and Australia's role in the world? I think it's a very great shame that he never visited Australia when when he could have. It was the one great uh, uh, part of the English-speaking peoples that he never made it to. I mean, he was one of the best travelled um, uh, politicians of the era, but he never he never got um, at all far, not just um, to the Antipodes, but anywhere near the, um, the Far East either. It would have been so, uh, so good for him had he been able to, because he admired the Australians hugely. There are any number of, uh, of speeches he makes in which he um, praises the Australians, their extraordinary bravery in both, uh, in both the First World War and the Second World War. Um, he was uh, friendly with Menzies personally. He, you know, it, it, it's, it's always struck me as a as a um, uh, a mistake. I think, and when when Paul Keating came out with it as part of a sort of wider, I thought anti um, anti British, anti conservative certainly um, philosophy. I think it just doesn't stand up on its individual merits. The fact was that the Dardanelles was a was a brilliant idea, a genius concept which collapsed when it came to um, the actual implementation where every mistake in the book was made, including by Churchill, including by Churchill. But um, nonetheless, I don't think that he should have been the sole scapegoat for, an, for, a, for a massive campaign in which all sorts of people had bore as bad responsibility as him. Uh, there's a lot of power in your description of the Dardanelles campaign, Andrew, when you mentioned something that I wasn't aware of, which was that Clement Attlee was there and, exactly as you described, supported the overall strategic vision of Churchill and and that perhaps contributed to their capacity to then work together quite effectively through the war, which was a point I was not aware of. Yes, he um, he was one of the last men off off the beaches at uh, Suvla Bay in January uh, 1916. So... uh, he, you could have expected him to have um, have thought that Churchill was a uh, strategic idiot, but in fact he recognised that uh, had the um, Dardanelles campaign come off, it would have been one of the most extraordinary coups in the history of um, of uh, warfare to have got the Royal Navy and the um, and the Allied fleet through the Dardanelles and to have moored it or anchored it off uh, Constantinople 
modern-day Istanbul, and to have taken the Ottoman Empire out of the central powers would have been quite extraordinary. And, uh, and uh, you know, as I say, one of the great coups of mankind and, uh, and warfare. Before we move on to the, a broader discussion of, of history and history writing, then coming back to the Dardanelles, can I ask you whether how Gallipoli is understood in Australia... Uh, as a failed, always doomed to fail mission of outstanding sacrifice that gave birth to the the modern nation is really a misunderstanding of what was attempted and what was trying to be achieved? Well, no. I, I think overall, I mean, you're certainly right about the extraordinary bravery and the, the courage shown by, by Anzac Vorses was... Uh, was truly exemplary, um, but it shouldn't be allowed to um, to minimise the courage also shown by the French and by by the British forces as well. Um, it was a it was not always deemed to fail at all. Had the attack on the 18th of March got through, um, the, the, much of the minefield was only was only sown the night before. Had it got through, it would have been um, extraordinary. What? exceptional. But however, um, once it failed to get through, then they probably shouldn't have undertaken the attacks of the 25th of April. Or if they had, they should have done it much earlier. And um, I think Kitchener is to blame for having moved the 21st Division in out and in and out again. Uh, that was a that was a disaster. The the lack of um, of speed, and then later on, people like General Stopford do deserve. Uh, you know, proper criticism, but the idea that we were all, as that movie Gallipoli showed, you know, the, the <laughs> yes. movie a few years ago, um, that the, uh, the British were just all sort of uh, snobbish um, officers drinking tea in the trenches, not caring when the young Australians and New Zealanders went to their death, is, a, is an appalling um, misrepresentation of what really happened. But it's an interesting thing because it sort of um, uh, brings out the role that Churchill has played well and beyond his career. In Australia, and we've already touched on this a little bit, Churchill as iconic of a former British legacy, a, um, a, an, a old of, empire. An, an old empire, a symbol of which we as a nation have to somehow overcome in order to be our full Australianness. Um, Churchill seems to have sort of adopted that, that and, and I know that this is the case in um, uh, the United Kingdom, of course, from a different perspective, but, but there's been a recent revival in interest in Churchill and his career, and there's your book, and of course, Boris Johnson released his book um, uh, a year or two ago. There's been movies about Churchill. Um, the best one is The Darkest Hour. There's been a very famous portrayal of Churchill by John Lithgow. What, what do you sort of attribute the new interest in, in Churchill? Is, this a, is he of interest in this particular political moment? Is he of Is it interest? a function of Brexit? Is it a function of Brexit? Is it a... It, <laughs> you don't have to it, talk it, about I, Brexit. Yeah. You know, I, think it's, I think it's a couple of things. There is an element of Brexit, of course. That was more the Dunkirk movie, I think, than the Darkest Hour in particular, although that that has also been uh, been um, interesting and, and, uh, and tied into the political zeitgeist uh, a bit. But I think also there's a sense that there is a paucity of um, leadership anyway in the Western world at the moment, and uh, and one and because Churchill does personify the best kind of leadership, um, the really best kind of leadership, the thoughtful, the insightful, the foresight, the eloquence, the intelligence, all of those things that that one sort of hopes for in a leader, and really for the last. 
20 years or so, um, uh, we, we, we haven't seen much of. And I don't mean in, just in Britain or Australia, but I also mean in the United States and, uh, and in Europe as well. It, there's, there's been a huge paucity of that kind of uh, level of, of leadership. So I think it ties into a, a wider yearning as well as the immediate zeitgeist. It does indeed. And, and part of that, which is one of the sub-themes of your, of your book, I think really is about the nature of leadership because the, particularly what uh, the demand is for and, and certainly the fact that popular history is taking up is, is uh, leadership from elected officials and the, so many of the, uh, you talk about mistakes and things that went right and things that went wrong are about this dynamic between the civilian and military leaderships. Uh, you talk about Churchill's own hero, uh, Clemenceau, in the Great War, that the, um, they, the French and English really only got organised on the Western Front when the French uh, had a leader who could pull it all together uh, and direct the military, and Churchill then uh, emulated that himself in the Second World War, as opposed to just relying on experts. And it seems that for many decades, uh, our politicians, um, certainly um, uh, in our country and the UK, to an extent, have been relying on experts, hiding behind experts, um, and you've got so many examples, though, where some, as well, Churchill admitted, sometimes they were right, but certainly there has to be that drive from the top, from the people who are accountable to the people. Precisely, and and with Churchill, the moment came, I believe, um, where he sort of saw through experts in 1925, when he was told that Britain needed to go on to the gold standard at a particular rate at a particular time. And um, he was told this by all of the economic experts, by the Treasury, by the Bank of England, by um, the, uh, the, news, the, the economic uh, people writing for the newspapers. Everybody apart from J.M. Keynes, he deserves a, uh, um, a uh, pat on the back for being the only person who said anything different. But when the entire establishment of experts got it completely wrong, uh, and Winston Churchill, ultimately, he certainly was no economic expert in, himself, uh, carried the can for it, ultimately. Um, I think it was um, useful for him to uh, to realise that experts can be wrong even when they're unanimous about something. And that also, I think, uh, helped him enormously during the appeasement crisis, where, again, all the foreign policy experts, all the, the, the sort of um, grey-headed wise men, all thought that it was a good idea, and uh, and he of course didn't. It's always struck me on on that that the um, the famous Churchill phrase that democracy is the best form of government, except for all the other forms that have been tried, is actually talking about a sort of technocratic expert elite um, uh, system rather than what an what attacking we all... of pop- the population and and democracy exactly. Itself. Rather than most people, when they they cite that, they presume it's to do with like a lack of democracy or totalitarianism or something like that. But it's actually sort of elite-driven technocratic democracy that was being um, uh, being promulgated on the left side of politics at the time. I think so. And also, of course, you must know, with Winston Churchill, you must never underestimate the fact it's also an extremely good joke. <laughs> <laughs> can, can I ask you, Andrew, a little bit about uh, the writing of, of history and the role of, of history in education, certainly in the community at the moment? And I'll preface my, my question to you by um, uh, contemplating the success you've had 
with the New York Times and I had to take a double take when um, I saw the heading of the review of Churchill in the New York Times. Is this the best one-volume biography of Churchill ever written? And, of course, the answer was, yes, it was. Um, I know, I felt a bit bad about them in, in inserting a question mark there, as you can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought you might have felt bad about the New York Times praising you at all, but... Uh, uh, the, 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 <laughs> no, that was one area on which the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal have agreed. <laughs> <laughs> and and, 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 and uh, the, the review talked about uh, the book written with authority, with panache and elegance and in enjoyable flashes of tartness, which is a view I would share. But then there was this rather interesting comment. Um, some may find Robert's emphasis on politics uh, and war old-fashioned, but then it goes on to say a life defined by politics here rightly gets a political life. Can I ask you about your reactions to, to history being written today and the uh, difference between the success, your success and the success of others writing military history, political history, intellectual history, and the almost absence of such histories in certainly undergraduate curriculum and at, and at school curriculum. What do you think is going on? I think what we're seeing is a, is a number of things that uh, uh, three or four major things that have been happening over the last, not just over the last 10 years, but longer than that, which are um, overall rather, I think, sad. Um, the first is specialization. Neil Ferguson is very good on this, uh, and he's seen it at, um, at Harvard as well as at Stanford. The history um, curriculum has just getting, has been getting tinier and tinier, and smaller and smaller themes. Um, really an obsession. It doesn't actually extend to an obsession with um, with race and gender, as opposed to the things that really mattered to the people at the time. Um, so that's one one problem, I think, with the teaching of history. The second is that um, people are... Um, the, the academy, as well as being cut off, as well as being getting more and more interested in more and more obscure things, is cutting itself off from the mainstream. Uh, and uh, And so... That this has created a sense of separateness between the academy and uh, and their, the people who should be reading their books, i.e. the general reader. So you find that the academy is really only writing for itself. And, um, and that also leads to, quite frankly, bad writing, uh, impossible, impenetrable tomes. Um, which are intended to uh, to get a pass and, on and the then back and then we ask ourselves things. why are students not enrolling in history at university? Precisely, yes. This was the next thing I was going to I was going to come on to. But, um, that, exactly that. The enrolments have been collapsing, and the reason is that it's not <laughs> frankly it's not that interesting or fun <laughs> any longer. And it should be. It should. Be. History is the most fascinating and most fun thing that you can do, in my view. And the idea. That, um, that historians are being turned off because it's neither fascinating nor fun is an absolute abomination as far as I'm concerned. Because it's, it, um, sorry, the, and, then, and then just lastly, lastly, the other thing is that um, whilst people talk endlessly about uh, diversity, actually you're getting much, much less diversity now, diversity of opinion in, uh, in the academy because there does seem to have been a almost complete... Uh, takeover by the left of history faculties 
in a way that um, one had previously seen in various other disciplines, such as the social sciences. And I think this is, obviously, I'm, I'm a conservative, so I would think this was a bad thing, but I think it's a bad thing as far as the um, consumer is concerned as well, because instead of a diversity of opinion, you're just really just getting one um, block of left-wing opinion, which... Um, uh, which isn't healthy either. There's obviously a um, uh, an ideological element to the takeover of history faculties and so forth, and 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 I'm a working academic as well, and I can sort of see what the the drivers are there. But but uh, it it has created this huge divide between a potential audience that I think you are very well tapping into and well placed to tap into in the popular mind who do want to read about great figures of history who do re- want to read about the significant challenges of our civilization in the past and the 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 enormous history profession who we certainly in Australia and I know in the United Kingdom we massively subsidize in order for them to do this sorts of research but instead they're doing it in other other fields as well do, what do you think went wrong i mean I, I think there's clearly an ideological element but where where did we fail as uh, as as citizens as policymakers to align everybody's interests together i just don't know the answer that way I, i'm afraid i i uh, that would be a fascinating history book in itself you need a sort of <laughs> like an equivalent of the of bloom's closing of the american mind is so uh, you you need a, a a book called Closing of the Historical Mind, which would um, be something that I'd love to read, but I would hate to have to write. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but then, Andrew, and can I um, explore that further? When Chris and I were talking uh, with Scott about what we'd discuss, discuss with you, my first reaction was, of course, uh, Roberts Churchill defeats the Marxist school of history that everything is race, gender, and and class, um, and your... inevitable as well. The, and and in, well, in indeed, and, life is inevitable and, either in and the way inevitable. That Marxist and, and how yeah. do you then how do you reconcile um, that view of history as is taught in schools and universities um, to what I would argue is the historical record, which is an argument that had Churchill not been born, uh, the Second World War would have ended quite differently and that it was due to the force of character and individuality and personality of one person. How do you reconcile those those two schools of thought? Well, it's, it, it's, he is um, a, the personification of the, of the importance of and the validity of the great man school of history which, of course, is absolute anathema, not just to the Marxists, but also to any determinists, any, you know, the Whigs um, didn't much like it either, because history can change on a, uh, it can change on a sixpence, and it was extraordinary and wonderful, exceptional that he was still alive in 1940, considering the incredible number of close brushes with death that Churchill had during his life. Um, and uh, as you say, I mean, I, I certainly believe that uh, if he had not been there, we've made some kind of ignoble peace uh, in Britain with uh, Adolf Hitler in 1940, and Hitler had therefore been able to use his entire forces, rather than just 70% of them, to attack Russia. Um, he would certainly have turned on us afterwards. The United States would not have come into the war, and I'd probably be speaking German now. So the, uh, the great man called the history does, uh, it, it, is, uh, it is relevant. It is indeed. We actually did a, the IPA did an audit of Australian history subjects and discovered that uh, basically none of our notable figures were, were, were covered there at all. And uh, 
We actually yeah. now pine for the days when the left and the right of politics each had their own competing heroes. Instead, we, there are no heroes at all, and perhaps that, that is the real agenda. Well, yes, that, that, I think that's right. That all heroes must be knocked down, must, their feet of clay must, which they all had, and certainly Churchill had, had huge uh, feet of clay. But the idea that that's more important than the positive things that they did uh, is in itself, I think, an ultimate uh, desire of the... Um, uh, of the left to, to feel that there's no such thing as a hero anymore. I'd like to say. And then also, there's another, sorry, can we, whilst we're on this, uh, another aspect is that the Academy sneers in the most superior, intellectually aloof way at the whole concept of military history. Um, there is, there are 40 or something uh, <laughs> peace studies um, uh, departments in, uh, in, in Britain as opposed to only one war studies department. And yet military history is tremendously important. It obviously has been in the course of, of human events. It's changed so many things over so many, uh, over so many um, centuries that it's, um, it's frankly uh, intellectually corrupt to, um, to sort of shove it in as, a, as, a, as a, one of the most minor aspects of, uh, of, of the human experience, which is what the Academy has been doing for years. And then, Andrew, can I ask you to elaborate on that? What does that then mean? For public policy making, and what does that mean for the community's understanding of of foreign policy, of of foreign engagements, whether they are European or British or American? What does that mean for how we then talk about policy? Well, luckily, it doesn't actually mean that much, thank God. <laughs> because uh, a a the books written um, are not read by the general public. The general public still likes to read books that are readable. And, um, and so they read the books of public intellectuals who can write and um, people, historians and biographers who, uh, who fill in the gaps that were left by, um, by the universities. Never let the label public intellectual be applied to you, Andrew. Here in Australia, that's a disparity. <laughs> no, I'm, an English, I'm an Englishman. The word intellectual means different things in England. It means that, you must, uh, that you're, you're, you're completely untrustworthy and shouldn't be allowed anywhere near a microphone. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I want to dig into a point you just made a moment ago, which is um, I, I think Churchill, uh, Churchill had some views that these days would march him completely out of polite or even impolite society. And his record does have, have blights, for instance, his Indian policy and so forth. But he's obviously and undeniably a great and positive figure in history and the history of liberty. So how do you how do you work through those those judgments? It seems in the current yes. climate we have. Yes, of course. Yeah. No, absolutely. He made what today would be considered a completely unacceptable racist jokes and so on. And he also believed in the hierarchy of races. And I, th I think really it's, it's like so much uh, to do with the whole racial question is you've just got to see it in historical context. Unless you do, none of it makes any sense at all. The fact was he was born when Charles Darwin was still alive um, and uh, they considered, it, even though we consider it, we know it to be completely ludicrous and obscene even today. They believed in a hierarchy of races. They thought that that was actual scientific fact. And unless you get into that mindset... You, you can't understand these people at all. But the great thing about Churchill was that he considered, because he thought he came from a, from a higher race, that he had a responsibility to all the other native peoples in the empire. And he took completely the opposite stance that Adolf Hitler and the exterminationists 
um, took from the uh, from from Darwinism and neo-Darwinism. So it was, of course, he was an imperialist, and he and he fought for the empire, and he believed in the empire, and there were some superbly important and useful things about the empire. Overall, I think the empire was a positive force for mankind rather than a negative one, taken in its entirety. Um, and so, unless you're able to uh, to see this, you might as well be asking, I don't know, what Oliver Cromwell thought of socialised medicine. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it makes he would no have been in favour, unless you can contextualise. Yeah. But but it, but it's an interesting challenge in, in not e- even just in how we think about our own history, but in public discourse right now. You can dismiss major world-changing historical figures just by oh. pointing out some things that they may I mean, have believed well, or we've said. Seen, um, we've seen uh, some uh, last week he, uh, a, a Green MP for, them, for, for Scotland, and he's 24 years old, so why anyone was expecting any sense from a <laughs> Green MP from Scotland who's 24 years old, I don't know. But nonetheless, he um, he said came out with the old tripe about... Uh, uh, about Churchill being a you know a war criminal and a genocidal maniac, um, and when asked what his uh, actual facts were for this, the evidence for this, um, he he said that Churchill made racist jokes. Well, <laughs> there's a huge difference between one and the other. There really is, especially in those days. In in that context, has anything surprised you about the reception to the book? Obviously, we've we've seen the reviews, which have been extremely positive. But but popularly in the intellectual class or just in the public and has class there been a difference in the reception uh, of the book in Europe and Britain compared to the United States? Um, do you know? In a way, the uh, the sales have been fabulous, and I'm in, I've just <laughs> got, been told I've got into the New York Times bestseller list for the ninth week. Um, so in the United States, that that's been uh, great. Um, the level of, of um, I've been undertaking large book tours around the. I must have had well over a hundred now um, speeches in 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 Britain and uh, America. Just about to go to Canada, and uh, four other European countries are coming up later in the year. And so far, what I found is that, um, understandably, the Americans are not as interested in the things that that Churchill's criticised for in England. They, they couldn't care less uh, about the Tonipandi riots of 1911, for example. Uh, they're much better at concentrating on the, on the big issues, on the things he, he got right. They want to know about the things he got wrong and why he, was, why he opposed women's suffrage, for example. That, that comes up, and I'm asked about it. I'm also asked a lot about the 19, his defeat in the 1945 general election, which um, which is, uh, is is still sort of uh, something that surprises um, Americans. But otherwise, I'd say overall the questions are about things like leadership, which um, uh, which matter to everybody. Timeless and eternal. I, I I take this opportunity, Andrew, since you are in the USA. Uh, I personally have always found Roosevelt to be a, a total enigma. And uh, you contrast the warmth of his correspondence with Churchill with then the complete lack of action. Um, based on uh, your much greater knowledge of, of Roosevelt and your time in America, is, uh, do you feel like you, you got to know Roosevelt a bit better and perhaps is slightly less of an enigma than, than I find him? No, he's still a sphinx-like uh, figure for me. He really is, especially towards the end of the war. I mean, obviously, he was he was very ill and and didn't live till the end of the war. So um, that's 
part of it just a health issue, but also his um, there are two there are over two hundred more messages and and letters and telegrams from Winston Churchill than there are replies by uh, Franklin Roosevelt. You know, by the by the fall the, the autumn of uh, 1944, um, the relationship, although personally friendly, had broken down politically um, because of post-war, all the interest in a move to what the world was going to be like after war, and really um, Churchill's uh, views of the empire uh, by that stage completely diverged from those of the American Republic. Andrew, we're coming to the end of our time, and I hope we can speak again very soon. Can I close this wonderful discussion by referring to the very last paragraph of of Churchill and your remark in the very last sentence um, that Churchill won the battles that saved liberty. Can I ask you, how did he do that for a person who led a full life, a wonderful life, who changed the course of history and who, as you say, did defend and won our freedoms? How did he do it? Well, I, I didn't subtitle the, the, the book Walking with Destiny um, just because it sounded good. <laughs> I think it actually does go to the heart of, um, of understanding Winston Churchill. From the age of 16, he believed that he had a special destiny, that he was going to save uh, London and, uh, and England and the Empire. And he, and he expressed that. And um, when one looks at many of the decisions that he took in, the, in his life, he very often did not put his own immediate best interest first, but he always did have this this sort of uh, belief, even in the darkest days in, in the, the before the war in, in the 1930s, he had this self-belief that propelled him to, to believe that he was going to uh, to save the nation. And uh, and I think that is, is central to understanding him. On top, as a result of that, you get the foresight, you get the eloquence, and extremely hard work and practice, of course, he put into his eloquence, but nonetheless, it was driven by the sense of destiny as well. Um, and you get his moral and his, uh, and his uh, physical courage. When, when, when those are all sort of put together into one man, the result is absolute dynamite. Andrew, thank you so much for your time with us today. Churchill Walking with Destiny is a very special book. Congratulations. Uh, and for our listeners and for everyone who is downloading this podcast, it is available in all bookshops in Australia. Andrew, thank you so much for being with us today on the very first episode of our special series of the Looking Forward podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. It's been a delight. Well, that was a fascinating interview. James Bolt, what did you think? Yeah, that was awesome. Uh, Most interesting thing for me was how many young people in Britain are convinced that Winston Churchill was a mythical figure. <laughs> like I couldn't, couldn't honestly believe Is that. Is that why yeah. they didn't have him at the uh, London Olympics? Well, it must have been, yeah. But James Bond got in, so maybe there's a complete reversal of who, who's... What did you learn about Winston Churchill at school, James? What I, um, well, not a whole lot in formal classes, but, you know... With, Dad, like I wasn't exactly getting out of that without a full Winston Churchill <laughs> education. But anyway, like um, 
No, enough about me. What did you guys sort of take out of it? I think Berg actually came back well on that point, though, which is uh, if he is a semi-mythological figure, it, it means that he's he's still part of the, the popular culture and all the movies that you were referring to there, Chris. Well, yeah, but what's interesting about the book is, and 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 I, I think he brought this out in our conversation, what's interesting about the book is it, it we've got this vision of um, um, the UK against Europe in during the Second World War, um, standing against the almighty, standing singularly and united against the almighty Germans, the almighty Axis. And what he really brings out in the book is, well, it was actually a very politically divided um, place. And everyone, it was like watching Kiefer Sutherland in 24 when you know that everyone is undermining, everyone is leaking and there's just him by himself and one or two others. And for me, that's what I really enjoyed about the book, reading about how at every turn he was stymied, he was undermined, uh, even by his by his friends, and yet he succeeded through all of that. But doesn't it tell you how we should think about our own world when we see so much internecine fighting in political systems? Where we're, I mean, we're in this environment, so so we've got a good idea what's happening inside the federal coalition. We've got a good idea of what's happening inside the political system, and we know who hates who and all that sort of stuff. 30 years from now, I'm not saying that this is a great moment like the Second World War, but 30 years from now, we we might forget a lot of that and we might start thinking, well, you know, it was a relatively stable period. It was a, a, we, we had relative economic growth, forgetting those details. Which is how history gets winnowed out. So, for, in, so for instance, the, the Hawkeye incumbent, uh, you hear so often it's like, oh, it should be more like the 80s when there was this remarkable period of economic reform where all Australians agreed that we needed to deregulate and privatise and open up the economy. Yeah, it was the Kumbaya years. And, and, and yeah. again, as Roberts talks about, oh, if only the spirit of the Blitz, well, that lasted about five minutes, if it lasted at all. And then by 1943 and 44, there were communist-led strikes uh, at the coalfields and in the munitions factories while British soldiers and allies were fighting and and dying. It's a lot more complicated, complex picture than this idea of, oh, we're always going to you know, beat the Hun. But this is why history is so important, because you do have to go back and, and, and look at those contemporary records and the, the sources that Roberts lists in the book. It is remarkable. And, and, and Roberts talking about the success of big history, and that was, for me, one of the interesting parts of the, the discussion about what's happened, because you go, you go to the airport uh, bookshelves and... Uh, there's lots of popular history, there's lots of military history, as, as Andrew was saying, that Churchill is now a, a bestseller. I don't think anyone's teaching her, Churchill in Australian universities anymore. What, what, what's happened? James, now that you were bullied into learning about Churchill by your dad, um, <laughs> as opposed to your, uh, your, your co-students, well, uh, how do you think that's changed your understanding of... Um, uh, our history. I mean, this is our history as much as it is just British history or the history of Western civilization. Do you think? Do you think you you understand more about that um, our place in the world than than perhaps some of your fellow students? Yeah, I never really thought about it in the Australian context, but uh, yeah, to bring it back to something that was harked on in, in the interview a lot was the impo- the importance of individuals in history. Like that's you know there is. The, uh, as you said in the interview, if Churchill wasn't born, we'd probably be speaking German right now. 
which I thought was really interesting. The that was Roberts who said it. I agree with it, but only Roberts had the courage to say it. <laughs> <laughs> Andrew, Andrew's written a thousand-page book on Churchill. He can say that if not for Churchill, we'd be speaking German. I wouldn't have the guts yeah. to. <laughs> uh, the other thing I want to ask you guys about is uh, he says he writes this book now because so many new sources have come out, as opposed to like all the sources that are already in existence which have led to so many biographies. Is it the case that like everyone who ever met Churchill just had something they needed to write. Well, I think I think it was Max Hastings, who's also a terrific historian and military historian, spoken about the thousand biographies of, of Churchill and it's everyone who ever met him from 1874 to 1965 wrote down what they thought and there was some British soldier in the 8th Army who shared a toilet with Churchill <laughs> who then decided to have to write write it down. Stretch, but, stretch but, it out into 10,000 words. Yeah. And, and, and what is interesting is we know Churchill so well but we don't so he didn't keep a diary he knew that everything that he was talking about was being written down even though he told everyone don't write it down he he wrote uh, voluminous memoirs much of which is is fake history um which which gives us the potential to keep on exploring churchill i mean i've read Oh, I don't know, maybe a dozen biographies of, of Churchill, Jenkins and Manchester and, of course, Boris. Uh, I learnt new stuff and even if it's the old stuff, it, it bears being said. You you made the point before we had the conversation that um, a lot of those diaries were written by real second writers as well. Yeah. That, so it was a great man recorded by... I, 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 did, <laughs> I did forget to ask Andrew, Andrew this and I might have to send him a follow-up email, which is... Um, Churchill was surrounded by these mediocrities, but the trouble is the mediocrities wrote the diaries. <laughs> <laughs> but then again, it, it circles back to, to Berg's original point, which is um, that's what it's like to be a political leader. Like everyone says, we need more leadership as if um, uh, when you anoint yourself as leader, uh, you just walk around and everyone says, oh, my God, you're so brilliant. But that's not actually what it's like. It's, it's that ability No, you're completely to, surrounded to, by mediocrities. Yeah, <laughs> mediocrities who are criticising you every step of the way. It, and it does take uh, – it's like fancy criticising Churchill for his ego. If he didn't have that ego, he would never have persevered and, and got anything and, and, done. And Churchill being a bit grumpy, gee. And and again, as, as, as Robert said, if you're talking about being uh, solicitous to your staff, the chances are that Hitler was kinder to his secretaries than Churchill was to his. John, we, we were also talking about sort of lessons from le- – uh, leadership lessons that you can draw out of Churchill's that life. That old and chestnut. Yeah. And, and, uh, and, and I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts as, as someone who's, who's read the book very comprehensively and I saw that you've taken notes in your copy and everything like that. What if I'm you, also you're reviewing the, it and, for the IPA and, review. And, and, you're Chris, a great, yeah. and you're a great leader in the free market <laughs> movement, of course. What, 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 did you, what, what did you draw out from a leadership perspective? Oh, look, 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 it has to be and, – and Andrew touched on this in the interview – Um, You need courage, but you also need to be willing to take risk and throw the dice for everything. Caesar, Napoleon, Churchill, uh, people who Roberts has written about were willing to risk everything and to risk everything you might get everything. And And again, Roberts talked about it, which is that Churchill was uh, willing to cast aside personal preferment, political office for his beliefs, however misguided they were, the abdication crisis, India, 
Appeasement. If Churchill had followed what 99% of our politicians do in the federal parliament, Labor, Liberal, Green or any other party, which was to follow the leader and hope that maybe if they do the right thing, they'll get into cabinet or into the ministry. And then if they do that and follow the right thing, uh, they might get to be leader one day, was not at all Churchill's path to power. And that is greatness. And how many politicians are willing to sacrifice themselves and their careers because you've spent years stacking branches, you've spent years <laughs> having cups of tea with the old ladies and gentlemen, you know, you've been the branch secretary, you've stood out on in the rain and the heat handing out how to vote cards on election day and at train stations at 5 a.m. and I'm not talking of personal experience at all. And then you <laughs> and then somehow you get pre-selected, you get elected, you're not going to sacrifice everything for the repeal of 18C. You're going to say, maybe if I get preferred and maybe if I do the right thing and if I vote for a bit more regulation and if I uh, vote for slightly higher taxes and if I keep my mouth shut on climate change, I might then get to do something about it. No, 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 no. Churchill, every single time, stood up. And so we can talk about, you know, Churchill had destiny and Churchill was a genius at so many levels. But I tell you what, the capacity to risk everything for your career and uh, uh, against your career for a belief... Uh, any human can exercise, but we don't. Yeah. Do you think this is a historical thing? Do you, I mean, Robert Menzies, we published a piece in the IPA review some years ago of a speech that Robert Menzies gave, I think to the IPA just, um, before, um, uh, one of the elections in the 1950s that it completely escapes me, but, but he made the point that he pulled down governments at least three times um, over matters of principle. Now, he was appealing to his colleagues not to do the same to him, but, he, uh, but, but you know, government, but politicians used to do this. Yeah, I think that was the 54 election. 54, and, yeah. and, and Menzies, and, and, and you're right, Menzies did that. And again, what Roberts does really well is these days if you resign, you do it to become prime minister or leader and you do it for political calculation. You look at why uh, Churchill resigned and, as Robert said, he resigned uh, from uh, some of his parties on the basis of free trade, for example. He resigned as a matter of principle. He didn't resign for political calculation, which is then I can get a few people and then I can show up the leader. He resigned because he wanted to mount the argument from outside the, the government benches and so he could say it. No one does that. I mean, the only, oh, far be it from me to draw really any parallels, uh, but there are some, you know, the Burt Kellys uh, of, of Australia, uh, Whitlam to some extent, Howard to some extent. How many people are willing to say unpopular things that they believe in uh, and sacrifice their careers for it? And al also, because the book is a complete biography, it's not just the war years, right at the start of his career... Uh, everyone thought he was a pushy little upstart because he, he, he was because he, he was he, <laughs> yeah. ca he came out of the yeah. blocks hard and uh, he just made me think of um, Keating who entered the parliament at 26 I, somebody said to him um, you know well done Sonny you know and, and you'll have time you know to, to do very well and he's, he's like no I have no time at all it starts now and be, so backbenchers there used to be a role for backbenchers in being annoying in being pushy but now it's all just pushed pulled into the machines be be a good little boy or girl and eventually and you might you might you might things peak, will come to you you might peak after 20 years on the backbench and and uh, churchill um uh, had a sense of fatalism 
about him. His father died relatively young. He nearly died a dozen occasions, which Roberts talks about nicely, whether it's getting run over in New York, whether it's getting stabbed at school accidentally, whether it's falling from a tree, whether it's getting shot at by boars. He had a sense of fatalism and he had a uh, acceptance of death too. I mean, he saw death many times. He Roberts talks nicely about how the death of especially the sons of his colleagues who died in in the First and Second World War affected him. Um, But he knew that in war people die. And a point that Roberts makes, which many others have talked about, which is um, the anti-appeasers were invariably those who had fought in the First World War. Eden, Macmillan, Churchill, who'd fought, um, who'd risked uh, death, who'd seen people die. Uh, Those... Uh, who favoured appeasement um, had not seen what war was was for and why they were fighting the First World War. So your Rab Butlers, your Chamberlains, your Halifaxes um, hadn't actually hadn't seen the futility of war. And it, as Roberts talks about, um, Churchill knew the First World War was about something. And his argument was, if we are not going to stand up to Hitler in thirty nine or thirty eight then why did we fight the First World War? Why did millions die? So I, I hope off the back of this that um, uh, more people will read the, the Andrew Roberts book. Um, and one of the thousands of... And one, and one of the, <laughs> <laughs> this one particularly, yeah, than any, any the, one of the many. This is a very good one. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but but it, it allows me to raise this bugbear that I've had. So, so we talk about um, his incredible leadership, his incredible... Um, uh, capacity to stand up on principle, um, make sacrifices. Um, on the other hand, though, there is a class of Australian politician, and I presume politicians around the world, that seems to solely read Churchill biographies because everyone picks up a Churchill biography and thinks to themselves, I am this great leader. <laughs> and, and then when they are asked to vote for something obviously terrible in Parliament, yes, yes, sir, yes, sir. It's inversely proportional. <laughs> the... the, the the, the, the chances of you doing a Churchill is inversely proportional <laughs> to, whether, to how many biographies you've read of Churchill and um, how often you talk about Churchill. Yeah, no, no, it's a, and it's profoundly depressing. So it's what profound. do you ascribe that to, Chris? Um, look, I think I, I think everybody knows. I mean, there, there's obviously name deep names. psychological <laughs> name names. There's obviously deep psychological issues that you have um, if you go into politics. But if because um, you want to save Western because civilization, because you want to save Western <laughs> civilization, and I think there's a there is a yearning for um, th- there's a yearning to be that leader, to be that um, uh, powerful leader. But as you've pointed out just just moments ago, that Churchill wasn't just he didn't just take risks. He didn't just throw it all to the wind. He had a he had a mentality, he had a sense of destiny, he had a, a correct confidence in himself, in his capacity to speak, in his capacity to communicate, and in his capacity to make judgment. Um, in part, maybe that's because of his, his uh, a sort of fatalistic worldview. But our politicians don't really seem to have that. And maybe they're just trained badly. Maybe the practice these days of just that, that worker bee getting pre-selection selects against those sorts of people. And, and it's funny because we think about, oh, well, only if you'd had careers outside of politics, you might be a, a, a better member of the parliament for the people. And, and, and Churchill, of course, did have a, a career outside of politics. And when he was in politics, uh, he did many other things as well. So the fact that you're in parliament for 50 or 60 years doesn't mitigate against taking risks and standing up for what you believe and standing for principle. It's about character. Indeed. And the other thing that Churchill did, of course, was communicate. Tremendous writer, won a yep. Nobel Prize 
for literature. What was the figure in the book? Uh, six million words. I uh, wrote tremendous histories of his ancestors of the walls and used wit and charm to build his political networks. Not always effective, but this is, again, the point about language and its role in politics and building those networks. So it's not just that um, we seem to be living in very straitened times in terms of standing on points of principle. People aren't allowed to talk. They're not allowed to communicate this suppression of language, 18C being only the legal apogee of that suppression. So how would someone like uh, Churchill ever establish a personality in the political and, and process? And how could he go on Sky and talk in more than two sentences <laughs> I, at a time? I, I, I have a sort of half-formed thought about this. So it's interesting that his first public prominence really came from his journalism, um, uh, writing war reports and then publishing um, a book at a very a very young age about his experience in wartime. Now, if you were to compare... Th- there are politicians who have entered parliament and have done some writing as well, but really the writing that they have done is being um, uh, just, you know, public policy, um, just argumentative stuff about how bad the left is or the right is or, or whatever there is. No one, no one has had that sort of formative experience. They're not, they're not, they're, they're not coming up with ideas for ideas' sake. They're coming up ideas with ideas in order to ultimately get power. Get power. Um, now, now, you know, we should never underestimate. Winston Churchill's desire for for, for leadership and power. <laughs> he wasn't adverse to power. Yeah, but I mean, he put him in the he put himself very aggressively in the middle of a war zone in order to to create content. And, and as as, as fellow as fellow content makers, that's really important. I, I would just observe that both Turnbull and Abbott had stints as journalists. <laughs> that is, that is a good point. That Abbott, good Abbott point. was with the Bulletin, so maybe there is something about that. Maybe that worked for them. And but but uh, did it uh, work for us? But uh, <laughs> again. So Abbott and Turnbull were journalists, so was was Churchill. But there's a difference between writing commentary about public affairs and this happened yesterday and this was the vote in the House of Reps or the Commons yesterday versus what Churchill was writing about, uh, the, the, the Cuban War, um, and, Sudan, he, and he didn't, he didn't so much cover them as participate <laughs> in them and then write about yeah. them. <laughs> so, so what are the big lessons? What, what, what do you think the big lessons out of both our conversation and, and, and the... the oh, yeah, look, as, as I said, I think, it's, I think it's character. And coming to character, and again, Andrew touched on this, and, I, and from your reading of, of, of Reagan, one, one gathers this too, the tremendous self-restraint that Churchill had of not telling people what he really thought of them. Uh, and there's a lovely line in the book about how Randolph uh, then becomes a member of his son, of course, becomes a member of parliament. And Randolph feels like I was feeling, which is you've got these appeasers in cabinet. You've got these pe- people who would have done a deal with Hitler. You've got uh, these people who would have given the bloke uh, half of Europe, if not more. And you're having to work with them. Can't we chuck him in jail? Can't we? Can't we? Well, I think Randolph might have even said, well, you know, he's hanging too good for them. And, and, and Churchill had the bigger picture in mind because he, he would have felt the same too. He said, no, I've got to work for them. And then uh, he, he gives a, a lovely eulogy about Chamberlain. He's looking after these people. It is self-restraint to keep the, the big picture uh, right. And, and Reagan, Reagan did the same. And this aspect of, of you know, you're, you're, whatever the line is, your enemy is on the other side of the house, but the opponent, your opponents are sitting behind you. Churchill did that brilliantly. His man management, or you know, these days you'd call it HR, 
back then it was man management. He he managed it really, really well. And 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 there's that. Um, and then the second part of the discussion was what has happened. What has happened to history? And I know Chris, you you have a view as as to why academics are writing books about uh, domestic furniture in 19th century provincial France that no one ever reads. Yeah, no, that's right. So so as as we sort of discussed in the interview, I think there's two parts. To this. So there's the ideological part, which is that um, there there are a lot of left wing methodological theories that get applied and all that sort of thing. And 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 as a as an academic. A, a, centre-right academic in, in the Australian So you'd call yourself centre-right, would you? Oh, well, apparently now I do. Um, uh, <laughs> how embarrassing. Um, uh, but, but I think what's also going on, and this is what I was trying to pick up there, is that we, as a public policy decision, we massively subsidise universities for them to do this. So if we, we have this idea correctly that we need to do research into the world around us. Um, and the way that we do that is just pouring, flooding the university system with, with money for research. Now, of course, the universities don't think that because they think that they're not getting enough money. But in fact, we've made a deliberate public policy decision to do disconnected research, to do research that's not connected to um, uh, what the public is interested in, um, the big picture stuff. Academics sell that as a virtue. Well, yeah, no, look. look I must a, be an academic because I've written a book no one will read. If the sole goal is to learn more and more detail about the world around you, which it can be, then then that makes sense. But there's also, we, we pour all this money, but we're not also producing stuff that the public can consume. And I think that's a problem. And then by learning more and more about less and less, forcing people to do PhDs and obscure well, topics well, they come out unable yeah, look, to teach a, a synoptic and, and, and version history, of history. And history enrolments plummet and students have no understanding of the past. Yeah, look, and, and it's got long-term consequences for not just the history students, but those history students become history teachers at the secondary level um, and it shapes how we understand and, the world around us. And on what a wonderful note to finish because <laughs> that is exactly why the IPA for 75 years has been talking and arguing and believing in these things. And that's exactly why 10 years ago we established our Foundations of Western Civilization program, Chris. Yes, yes, John, it is, with the, with the wonderful bitch. And that's also <laughs> why we established uh, Looking Forward, the latest IPA podcast in our podcast network. If you'd like to listen to more episodes, you should subscribe via iTunes or any of the other wonderful podcast platforms if you'd like to Support the work of the IPA, you can do so on our website. Uh, look, looking forward to more special episodes and also our uh, forthcoming regular episodes. I'd like to thank, first of all, our producer, James Bolt, John Roskam and Chris Berg. Talk to you again soon. Bye.